this week's episode of Peach Pod, we are going to take a look at the Georgia film industry tax credit and how Georgia uses its tax policy to support Hollywood here in the state of Georgia. For our second topic this week, we're going to take a look at a report out from the Associated Press on the Clinton Foundation and the critiques that have come up since that report came out about how it is or is not representative of the the groups and the people that might have had influence on Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. And then for our third topic of the week, we're going to look at a article that's going to that ran in New York Times Magazine this weekend by Emily Bazelon on the death penalty. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the status of the death penalty in Georgia and in other states and what its future might look like. Uh, but before we get started, I'm going to kick it to Luke for some business. Hey there, Kyle and everyone else. Uh, just wanted to uh, thank everyone for bearing with us for not having a show last week. Uh, we uh, thought that during the Olympics, it would be a good time to take a little breather and prepare ourselves to run out the rest of this election every week. And then additionally, I've gotten a lot of great responses from listeners, and I really appreciate that. And I appreciate John Richards complaining about our audio quality on multiple occasions and hope that uh, if you're out there, John, thanks for the criticism. And we found it very constructive, so hopefully this week it'll be better. But to the actual business part of this, this show is really, really fun to make. But we would like it to be a little bit bigger than just our friends and family listening to it. And so... Uh, please like and subscribe us, leave comments, you know, do do things that are unnecessary to uh, promote this show. Promoting on the subway, promoting on the bus, you know, wherever you are, there's someone else that could be listening to this that should be. And so if you could spread the word, spread the gospel of Peach Pod to people, that would really help us in making this show. Additionally, if you like this show, if more people are listening to it, we will be able to do cooler things like book guests and do interviews, which is something I've really wanted to do. And so with a bigger listener base, uh, that will be making those pitches a lot easier in the future. So that that's really the only bit of business I have. And so uh, let's get into the news of the week. So since we were uh, gone last week, we're going to talk about some things that happened uh, in the past two weeks as, uh, as well, instead of just talking about uh, things that happened this week. And so, Kyle, you want to go ahead and give us your uh, news of the week? Sure. So uh, this story is a little bit behind. It's a couple weeks old. But the thing that caught my interest over the past couple weeks has been the deal for Georgia State to buy um, Turner Field. So as is pretty well known in the city of Atlanta, the Braves are actually moving out to the suburbs. And um, there was some question about what was going to happen to Turner Field in the absence of the Braves. Uh, But it looks like Georgia State is going to finalize a deal by the end of the year to buy the stadium and turn it into some kind of mixed-use development and possibly use it as their football field for their young football program. Um, and so there's a lot still to be ironed out. Um, and it looks like you know the governor wasn't actually totally um, aware that the deal was going to happen. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if there's any um, pushback on the deal as it goes to get finalized, but it looks like there is going to be some kind of future for that property that Turner Field is on, um, and we should know by the end of the year. Um, Luke, what did you see in the news? Well, and what was a significant shakeup of Trump's campaign, he brought in Steve Bannon of Breitbart and Kellyanne Conway, who had been serving as his pollster and doing some communications work for him as his campaign manager. And our beloved friend of the show and Ukraine, Paul Manafort, is gone. And so I I was sort of surprised by this because Trump had been 
you know, seeming to go off the rails a lot the past couple weeks, but then he, you know, in some in reporting was claiming to be very unhappy with how his campaign was going and complaining that he wasn't getting to be himself. And so he got rid of Paul Manafort and brought on some people I guess he's more comfortable with and has been campaigning as, as Trump. What are we on now? 3.0, 4.0? I'm not sure. But in what is one of the first major changes in this new, 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 new Trump, uh, he has pivoted on immigration. He's calling, it a, he's calling it a softening, and then when he seemed to not like that term, he called it a hardening. Uh, the new position seems to be that maybe he was too mean to illegal immigrants and some of them should be able to stay. So instead of kicking all of them out and their families, as he had been talking about earlier in the year, he is now talking about letting some people stay. And even at a town hall that he held with Hannity, he polled the audience about what he should do. It seems like uh, Trump might not be as pivoting as much as he's waffling on immigration. So I found that really, really surprising and uh, makes me wonder what effect that's going to have on the race, since immigration was his defining issue, and the wall has been his campaign's most consistent theme, with this weakening or softening or you know, his erroneous claim of a hardening on immigration. It'll be fun to see how his supporters respond to that. And with that, I think we'll move on to our first topic of the week. Um, So this week we want to start with a review of the Georgia film industry. Um, So pretty recently the governor put out a a press release showing that the, the film industry had a $7 billion economic impact in Georgia and that film companies spent um, collectively spent $2 billion in the last fiscal year. So, you know, when you're thinking about Hollywood, why would you, or when you're thinking about movies, you think about Hollywood and you think about California. But there's actually been a real explosion of the film industry in Georgia. And so that was something that, you know, we wanted to do as a topic um, to sort of explore how that happened. Um, and this really goes back to um, 2008 when the state legislature passed the Georgia Entertainment Industry Investment Act. And this created a tax credit where uh, film producers could deduct 20% of their expenses on their state income tax um, if they qualified under this new law. And they could deduct 30%, so 10% additionally, if they use some Georgia branding on their products. And this um, was in response to Georgia losing a film um, to Louisiana that was supposed to be made in Georgia, and it was about a story that took place in Georgia. Um, But they ended up losing the film to Louisiana because at the time, and I think this was 2006, they had, Louisiana had a more aggressive tax policy um, in terms of bringing in Hollywood producers and Hollywood productions. Um, So Georgia passed this law in response in 2008, and ever since then, the film industry has been growing in the state to the pretty staggering numbers that the governor put out um, this year. Um, There have been two other points that we'll start with in the the introduction that two other things the state is doing to support the development of the film industry in the state. Um, The governor's office has the Georgia High Demand Career Initiative, and film and TV production jobs are a central point of that initiative. Um, And then there's also been support for infrastructure growth, including the development of of Atlanta Metro Studios in Union City and the expansion of Pinewood Studios in Fayetteville. 
Um, so George has been really aggressive in recent years in uh, both supporting film producers from the tech side and trying to prepare a workforce and some infrastructure to have the film industry stay strong in Georgia. Um, you know, so Luke, with that introduction, what are some of your thoughts on um, how the film industry has developed and whether or not it's a good thing for the state? This is an issue where not all Republicans believe it's a great thing because a lot of people can see it as government handouts and crummy capitalism by picking favorites and interfering with the free market by promoting an industry that did not naturally develop in the state. And then, same goes on the left. There are some people that think, again, crony capitalism, and you're uh, giving money to corporations that already have millions and sometimes you know, billions of dollars to come to the state and do work. And so we're subsidizing people that maybe we shouldn't be subsidizing and really don't add a whole lot of benefit to the state. And so that's an interesting view. And I think it's hard to tell how right or wrong those arguments are. Because for me, if I was personally making the decision if we should do uh, you know, these programs and giving money to this industry, I would want to know how much money we're getting in return. And so I know, Kyle, you've looked into this a little bit. And so how, mu- how much money is Georgia getting from these subsidies? Or is that a you know, unknown, un- you know, known unknown? And we don't know how much money these programs are actually bringing in. Well, in some ways, it's difficult to measure. So, so the governor put out figures that there was a $7 billion economic impact and the $2 billion in economic spending and direct spending that um, we talked about in the intro. But you know that even that estimate of the economic impact has been somewhat critiqued. There was an AJC fact check on one of the previous um, announcements by the governor. I think this was either one or two years ago. And they talked to a um, economist who said that the multiplier that the governor was using in the um, in his statistic for this economic impact was a little bit too high. I mean, his multiplier would have been about half of what the governor used. And so the you know if that still extends today, then the the impact of this seven billion that the governor cited might be closer to three or four. Um, but even that is sort of vague um, because of, um, you know, because of some of the pushback to the film industry. There, there have been other states that have sort of stepped back from their film tax credits the last few years. Um, and this, you know, was brought about from a lot of the same criticism from both the left and the right among people who are really concerned about budget policy Um you know, it comes from the conservative side, the conservatives saying that states should not try to create industries where they haven't grown up naturally. Georgia would be included in, a, in you know, one of the states where Hollywood hasn't grown up naturally. Really, only California is sort of really well known for it, sort of organically. Um, but there was also a big fight over this in Louisiana, the state that sort of originally set Georgia off uh, down this path. Um, and in the middle of a budget crisis in 2015, their um, a think tank in the state called the Louisiana Budget Project put out a report saying that the um, film tax credit program that they had was too much of a costly giveaway to Hollywood. And that resulted in Louisiana stepping back from the program. A quick question um, on that, that study. That think tank, uh, does it traditionally lean left or right? Or is it a you know, centrist group? Like what, where do they lean? Well, they are um, 
you know, slightly left of center nonpartisan group. They're a part of the um, same group that the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute is a part of. So they are, you know, primarily focused on fiscal issues um, in the same way that GBPI is. But, you know, Louisiana wasn't the only state. Um, the um, There was a, some pushback in Maryland. There's been some other states that have pulled back. Um, and there has been some criticism here in Georgia. You know, the Georgia Public Policy Foundation, which is a right-of-center think tank, um, wrote a few years back that state tax incentives like these weren't um, a really great use of taxpayer dollars, that it would be better to not sort of be routing these dollars through state government before they go to some sort of economic development project, that, you know, their position tends to be that, you know, lower tax rates, you know, and less government spending in general is sort of the best way to promote economic development. Um, and then even from the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, um, they they haven't been as critical directly of the program, but they're sort of critical of this, you know, the film tax credit is a part of you know, a pretty big bucket of tax credits and tax incentives that the state uses to provide economic development incentives in a lot of different industries. Um, and GBPI has been critical of the state for not having a more comprehensive review process for how um, we measure whether or not these tax incentives are worth it. Um, what's, the, what's the name of that program and what's some other, you know, industries that it's very active in? Um, well, I mean, the, the tax credits sort of happen on a one-by-one basis, so it's not really a program um, specifically, but, you know, there are tax credits. I think Delta gets a tax credit on, you know, some of the sales tax that they would have to pay on jet fuel. Um, there was some consternation about a tax credit for, um, I believe it was airline equipment or airline, something to do with airline development that I will find out more specifically and put in the show notes. But there is there is a big report that the state puts out every year on each tax credit that the state has, and it's literally a hundreds of pages report. Um, and it puts you know out what each state tax credit is and then how much revenue is lost because of the tax credit, which is kind of an estimate. But it isn't some of the criticism from GBPI and I think other people that have looked at this is that there isn't really a comprehensive way for reviewing these and sort of weighing out what is beneficial to the state and what might be either kind of a waste of money or supporting an industry that might have developed anyways. Um, well, let's, well let's get back on to the industry, though, because um, what, what I was going to ask you is that, you know, you were mentioning how states like Louisiana and Maryland who uh, have film industry credits and then decide to uh, lower them or get rid of them entirely saw the film industry start to move away from them. So is there indications that if Georgia moved away from these tax credits, would the film industry also leave? That's a more difficult question. I think part of what makes Georgia's efforts, in my opinion, to be fairly unique is that it's not just a tax break. And if you have other states that are kind of moving away from this program, you know, Hollywood's been criticized in the past for shopping between states to see who will give them the best tax deal. But if you are backing off of the tax breaks in some of these other states, but Georgia continues to maintain theirs, and it, you know, there was some discussion before the last legislative session as to whether or not 
this tax credit could be on the chop, chopping block. It didn't turn out to be, and I don't think you know the governor is interested in it, given um, that he has continued to tout the economic impacts of the film industry. So if um, you know if we have you know if we continue the tax credit, but then you also continue to develop the Georgia High Demand Career Initiative, and you know there's been a lot of development of infrastructure around these studios. Um, it seems like it's possible that there is a little more staying power if you kind of tweak the tax credit to maybe be a little bit smaller. Um, you know, obviously, I'm not an industry expert, so I, I couldn't say for sure. And, you know, producers would, you know, like any entity that has some sort of stake in a government policy is going to cry foul when there's any changes that are proposed. Um, but it does seem like there are a couple of points in the other direction where um, the industry has more infrastructure here than it has in the past. And so they may, you know, if, if you don't just completely abandon the tax credit program, but you've sort of adjusted, there may be other reasons that the industry would want to stay. Yeah, just to wrap up that topic, I think it's important to point out that um, if a measure of how successful the this program has been is, how, you know, the increase in films and TV shows and everything else that's produced or made in Georgia in any way, shape, or form, even cartoons, I would say this program's been very, very successful because the sheer amount of stuff that I've seen with a peach at the end of it has really dramatically increased. And so I think on that front, it's a success. So the question going into the future is, is there going to be a way that we can measure how fiscally uh, successful this has been for the state? And if the industry has any sign of staying, if um, if the tax credits are ending or even reduced in any way, shape, or form. So I think that's what I'll be uh, looking for as we go forward. So I think with that, we'll jump into topic two. We're going to be talking about Hillary Clinton and her campaign. Um, you know, for, for quite some time, we've, we've had our friend Donald Trump just sucking up all the oxygen. So it'll be, it'll be fun to dive back into the Democratic side and what's going on with the Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton's campaign. So what what has been a recurring theme in this campaign is that by all contemporary standards, by looking at any other campaign in the past, if you look at a week that Hillary Clinton had, it would be considered one of the you know, worst weeks of a politician, politically speaking, by like what was in the news, until you look at what happened to Donald Trump and the week that he had, and then, by comparison, her week is nothing. But, in one, you know, rare example of a Clinton news story that has actually been able to maintain in the news cycle, is the Associated Press came out with a report that over half of the people that Hillary Clinton met with while she was Secretary of State were also donors to the Clinton Foundation. Now, that headline in itself is pretty outrageous and would you know push a lot of people to think that there's some serious corruption going on with Hillary Clinton and there are some you know really serious questions that need to be asked about what she was doing as Secretary of State and how the Clinton Foundation was affecting any decisions she was making but then you actually have to read the report when you do that, you'll see it's an incredibly low number of people that they're talking about met with Hillary Clinton. And that number is 154, which 
you know, just to refresh people's memory, because this campaign has felt like it's been our entire lives, then add another life onto that. Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State for a while. She was Secretary of State for four years. She met with a lot more than 154 people. And out of those 154, only 85 of them were actually donors to the Clinton Foundation. So where, where are all the other people that she met with? She was one of the most active secretaries of state in our country's history, going to hundreds of countries all around the globe. Obviously, unlike what Donald Trump likes to make you think, Hillary Clinton was not sleeping that whole time. She was meeting with a lot of people. And so the AP, which they barely, you know, <laughs> go to point out, excluded everyone who she met with for, like, official purposes. So the thousands of government officials, both foreign and domestic, that she met with for activities with the Secretary of State's office are completely gone from this list. Additionally, a lot of the people that she met with are people that a Secretary of State would meet with anyway. And what I think is even more ridiculous and even more important to point out is that a lot of these people who are donors to the Clinton Foundation have known her for 20 years. And so, assuming that they were trying to buy access, that's a pretty crappy way to do it if they've already known her for over 20 years and they felt like that was somehow going to be the thing that opened up all their wildest dreams. So, this, like the emails, has just been a story that is looking desperately for there to be a there there without actually considering if there is a there there or not before they report on it. And so, Kyle, I mean, like, what, what do you think about this story? Am I, am I just being completely blinded by my support of Hillary Clinton and, you know, my, my strong desire for a Democrat to be the next president? Is there a there there? Like, what am I missing? <laughs> You're missing any evidence that um, any decision ever made by the State Department or any um, you know, decision ever made by the U.S. government was appeared to be influenced by any of these um, meetings that Clinton held. Um, so, you know, sort of in addition to the criticism of the reporting, which has been, um, you know, pretty good, Matt Iglesias wrote a pretty well-cited um, criticism in Vox where he, you know, basically called out the argument that you said that it, you know, the number um, that they use only includes people that were non-government officials, so it clearly excludes, you know, probably thousands of meetings that she's had. Um, and then, you know, sort of even more remarkably is that, you know, if you only look at those 154 and you think about, you know, is there balance for some small person who, um, you know, did not meet with the Clinton or did not donate to the Clinton Foundation? Is there, so, you know, some sort of balance? You know, it is only half of that number that um, that she met with that donated to the campaign. I mean, there's another there's another 84 or 85 people in there that um, were not donors to the campaign that she met with. So, um, you know, I mean, like, there are just so many layers in which this story is, you know, in my opinion, like, <laughs> pretty ridiculous. Um, but... It is sort of part of, um, you know, the way, you know, this is one of the reasons that Hillary Clinton is so skeptical of the media is that in their promoting of the story, the AP, not only, you know, did they put out the story that, you know, was fairly focused on a narrow number of people, but their tweet, um, 
you know, announcing the story was said that more than half of those who met with Clinton as Secretary of State gave money to the Clinton Foundation. And then they included an infographic um, that said at least 85 of 154 people who met or had phone conversations with Hillary Clinton while she was Secretary of State donated or pledged commitments to her family charity. You know, one of the ways in which news travels now and which it didn't travel in the past is that people, you know, come to pretty snap judgments based on what they read on social media, through infographics, through tweets. So not only, you know, there is a little bit of nuance in the AP report, and then I think it was updated kind of after the fact with some of the responses from the Clinton campaign where they sort of echoed the same argument that we've talked about. Um, their spokesman, the Clinton Foundation, or not, the Clinton campaign, there's there's where the conspiracy is. So the Clinton campaign spokesman, Brian Fallon, said that it's outrageous to misrepresent Secretary Clinton's basis for meeting with these individuals, and he called it a, a distorted portrayal of how often she crossed paths with individuals connected to charitable donations to the Clinton Foundation. So this critique is in the AP story. The problem is the way the story is promoted, there is no recognition of this nuance or recognition of this critique from the campaign. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton also defended herself in an interview with Anderson Cooper later in the week. Um, she Talking about the AP report, she said the report draws a conclusion and makes a suggestion that my meetings with people like the late great Ellie Wiesel or Melinda Gates or a Nobel Peace Prize winner were somehow due to connections to the foundation instead of their status as highly respected global leaders. Um, and she basically called the report absurd. Um, so all that is to say, you know, there, there was a lot of critique of this, and I, I think a lot of it is fair. I do think that it sort of represents what you know, was reported on earlier this year as one of the Clinton rules for covering Hillary Clinton, um, you know, where the media assumes that Hillary Clinton is always acting in good faith until there's hard evidence, evidence to prove otherwise. Um, Wait, you, real quick, who wrote that? And I think you just said that Hillary Clinton always acts in good faith until proving otherwise. Don't you mean that she's acting oh, in bad faith? Bad faith, yes. And this, So this was Jonathan Allen, who briefly wrote at Vox, um, also was a New York Times reporter for a long time. Um, but basically this point that, the Clintons are always acting in bad faith until there's hard evidence to prove otherwise, sort of serves as the motivation for reporters looking for this story. Um, you know, this story came out of both, you know, some new releases of her emails and then some FOIA requests about the Hillary Clinton's calendar, like her meeting calendar when she was Secretary of State. And it, you know, it seems like the way the report is framed, that they are you know, taking a relatively arbitrary number and trying to attribute, um, you know, trying to present this as evidence that she's definitely acting in bad faith without any sort of context around, um, you know, why, you know, any context around the numbers, any context around how she could have had meetings with other people. And I think this is just another piece of the evidence of why Hillary Clinton is so hesitant with the media you know, I've been kind of critical on about her on this show before how, you know, I had wished that in 2008, when she began as Secretary of State, that that would have been a, a good time for her to sort of shed all of the bad habits of the past in terms of how she related with the media. And, um, you know, and, and I, I felt like that was a missed opportunity to do so, both with the 
um, use of the private email server when she was Secretary of State. Um, well, let's let's take it a step in that direction then, because you know, again, both of us, I think, you know, are Hillary Clinton supporters. So talking about why Hillary Clinton is right, while we might be, you know, it might be accurate, I think it would do us some good to talk about how she's wrong in this situation. So let you know, I, I can point out a couple ways where I think they have botched this, and that is. One, by allowing this story to be vaguely plausible with some people in the first place is a failure of the Clinton campaign and both Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton for not drawing clear enough lines of distinction between the foundation and the Secretary of State's office. Because what I think is exceptionally true for the Clintons throughout their careers is that a lot of times... They're not doing the horrible things that people are accusing them of. However, they all are not doing a great job of, you know, producing an image of them not doing something bad. They always seem like they're up to more bad than they actually are. And so I think that's something that this is just another example of how the Clintons failed to either predict or they did things that made the situation look worse than it actually was that should have been avoidable. I don't see actually on the, for this specific story, I would disagree with you because I think this to me is an example of sort of no matter what they do, they're going to be critiqued by the media in some way. I mean, there was, I don't. Well, okay. Okay. For example, because I think this is the best example of that. So the Clintons have said that if Hillary Clinton wins the presidency, that Bill will step down from the board of the Clinton Foundation and that they'll stop accepting corporate and foreign donations. So answer to me, why did they not do that when she was Secretary of State? And why would they not just go ahead and do it right now while she's running for president? So... By saying that they're going to shut down Bill's affiliation with the foundation if she becomes president, they're acknowledging that either the appearance or the reality of influence could happen through the foundation. So why does it matter only when you're president and not when you're running for president and not when you're secretary of state? Well, I think it's much more about appearances than it actually is about reality. I think it would, you know, the, the appearance of conflict of interest when she's president could sort of significantly harm her credibility and her ability to get her proposals passed or ability to implement the foreign policy that she wants when she's actually president. I don't actually know that that same test or that that, that same outcome of that test, whether or not it impacts your credibility, applies to her when she's secretary of state because this is not – this was not a story – during her tenure as Secretary of State. This was not, you know, a big thing. This became a big thing because she is campaigning for president. And this is where I think the the line is drawn is, you know, it is it is less egregious about the actual facts. I think that was sort of the first half of this conversation. It is egregious on appearance. And I think that her I think that what they announced earlier this week and where Bill Clinton would step down and not do fundraising, I think that is an effort to mitigate um, the the look of bad appearances when she's president. Um, but I don't think that you know I don't I don't know that 
it would have been different in the campaign if she had done something. I mean, I don't know. I think they're weighing out when they make this decision, they're weighing out, you know, first, is it actually going to have any influence on our decision making that, you know, at least from her as secretary of state, that seems obviously no. So then as secretary of state, she's not a very political figure when she's in that position. Therefore, appearances don't seem to be as important. Um, And then when you weigh out the ability you know, that potential negative in terms of appearances versus the ability of the foundation to raise money when you have Bill Clinton as sort of the head and the main sort of fundraiser for it. I don't know that there is a very good argument for shutting down the Clinton Foundation when she's secretary of state. I think the political problem is bigger when she is president. Um, And so I would disagree that I think there is an important distinction there between the two. Yeah, well, to to wrap this up, I would just say that I think... It frustrates me with how hard it seems for the Clintons to get themselves out of messes like this and how often they seem to stumble into them. And, you know, this, of course, does not weigh on my decision to support Hillary Clinton in any way, shape, or form. But just as another example of the drip, drip, drip of Clinton, you know, pseudo-scandals, it's just... It's just frustrating to go through it again. And really, I think this is the most appropriate time to point out, um, uh, you know, what I think is a great way to measure scandals like this, which is what I've called the Gazi versus Gate scale. And this is definitely Clinton Foundation Gazi, as in it is a fake scandal that won't go away, rather than a Gate, which is a real scandal that should be investigated. Um, so... We'll see how this uh, continues as uh, more information comes out and if the AP does any cleanup on their reporting to try to you know, change everyone's opinions of how, how bad the story was. But I think with that, we can move on to topic three. All right. So for our third topic of the week, we are going to talk about the death penalty in the context of a new New York Times Magazine article out this week called Where the Death Penalty Still Lives. Um, and if you are a fan of the Slate Political Gab Fest, this is by one of the Gab Festers, Emily Bazelon, um, who does really great legal reporting um, pretty regularly. Um, so if you caught their show last week, you probably already heard the background of this. But to just kind of walk through the background, um, Bazelon reported on sort of the new geography of the death penalty where um, there's a very small number of counties, um, you know, 16 counties by the analysis from one of the Supreme Court justices that have issued um, a majority of the death sentences in the last few years. Um, In a lot of places, the death penalty is sort of scaling back. Um, And she looks at this geography in the context of a a murder that took place in Jacksonville, Florida, where a girl who um, ran a mobile phone store was shot during a robbery. Um, But the killer in the case was, you know, was convicted. And then there's been some back legal back and forth over whether or not um, he would ultimately get the death penalty. He was sentenced under the death penalty. Um, but, you know, one of the interesting things about the case is that the mother of the girl that was murdered and um, the other two children that the mother has have requested and sort of made their opinion known that they did not want the killer in this case to get the death penalty because of um, the conditions under which the killer was raised. He had a a sort of an abused and neglected uh, childhood. So that is, you know, that is the 
the quick take on the, on the New York Times piece, which is definitely worth reading. But it, it caught our eye because, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the death penalty in Georgia in recent years. Um, every time that the state has sentenced somebody to die, there's been or every time an execution has approached, there's been some protests in Athens that have, um, you know, made local news there, um, you know, protesting both the fact that the death penalty exists and then sort of some of the poor circumstances under which the death penalty is administered. Um, and so this new geography of the death penalty was interesting to me. Um, you know, the South has long sort of been known as a place where the death penalty is, you know, sort of more common, the, um, you know, the deep southern states, um, you know, since 1976 have produced 82 percent of death penalties. And, you know, the group of deep, deep south states, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, Texas, um, have been known as sort of the death belt for um, a lot of this time period. Um, and, that, you know, so in, in researching this, I was I was curious to know you know, is Georgia among these 16 counties where the majority of death penalty cases are happening? And it actually turns out not to be true. Um, you know, there was, you know, Georgia County is not one of those counties. And even though the number of executions, which is sort of the the big media point that's come up where some of these protests have happened, you know, Georgia has actually executed more um more than any single year in 2016, they'd executed six people. Um, so they're, they're, you know, the state is sort of like catching up on its backlog in terms of finalizing these executions. But the number of actual death sentences that has been um, put out by prosecutors or, or by the judicial system in 2016 has actually only been one. Um, and so Georgia appears to be among a group that's actually sort of receding from the death penalty while other states are, um, you know, while other states are also receding, but while in some very narrow places, um, the death penalty is still um, strong. So, Luke, um, you know, when you were taking a look at this week, at this topic this week, what was something that stood out to you? Well, I think what's interesting is really that not more people are talking about it, because I remember for the at least the past couple of years, I've heard several stories about how the death penalty was in danger, not from just more liberal courts, as some uh, you know conservative commentators have lamented, but just from the fact that there's been a lot of problem ex- problems accessing the chemicals that make uh, the modern death penalty work, because a lot of the uh, chemicals that are used in executions are actually not produced in America and that they're produced in countries that are against the death penalty. And so they had stopped producing them for America since they knew uh, what we were using uh, those, those compounds for. So, I mean, I thought that's, that's been an interesting thing to see uh, develop and I'm surprised more people don't talk about that aspect of it. And additionally, I've, I've heard in some of the you know conservative outlets that I've listened to during this campaign cycle, that among the you know top issues for conservatives concerned about a Hillary Clinton presidency and what Supreme Court that she would uh, you know appoint, uh, you know might be the end of the death penalty if she had the opportunity to appoint several justices. And so 
I think this is really going to be a pretty big issue that's kind of like a sleeper issue and the fact that like people aren't paying a lot of attention to it, but it could really radically change in the next decade or you know, you know probably less. Well, I mean, what, what, what do you think that the timeline on this issue is? I think to some extent it is you know, determinative of um, you know, what happens with the Merrick Garland uh, nomination between the election and what, you know, at least based on figures now, or based on polling and really any other indicator that we have right now that um, will be, you know, the beginning of a Clinton presidency in, in 2017. Um, what has Gar- Garland said on the death penalty? Do we have a general idea of where he stands on it? So, um, you know, as according to some reporting in the New York Times, uh, Judge Garland has said that um, the constitutionality of capital punishment is settled law. And that as a prosecutor, he has recommended that the government seek the death penalty in certain cases. Um, so it's not a slam dunk that Garland would you know, be a vote for ending the death penalty. Um, and then it's also worth noting that the older justices on the court right now are um, justices that were appointed by Democratic presidents. So it's, you know, it doesn't look as though, you know, barring something terrible happening, it doesn't look as though there is an opening with where the court is now, um, you know, the other thing to consider is that the court really doesn't um, try very often to get in front of a of public opinion too much. I think, you know, that was sort of one of the lessons of the uh, marriage equality cases is that, you know, public opinion on marriage equality has changed a lot in recent years. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the action by the court came sort of after that. Um, there is still a small majority of Americans that support the death penalty, Although there is also a recognition from, um, you know, people surveyed that the death penalty can be, um, you know, can result in someone who is innocent potentially being killed. Um, You know, one of the things to note from Emily Bazelon's piece is that this analysis of the 16 counties that are producing most of the death penalty sentences, um, the conditions under which these counties um, you know, have the death penalty and why, some of the contributing factors that might explain why they have more death sentences than other places do. Um, there were three things that they looked at. They looked at um, the how aggressive prosecutors were. Um, so, you know, were they more often, were they more likely to recommend the death penalty in certain cases? They were. Um, they also looked at the status of, you know, criminal defense and public defender systems um, and saw that those were weaker in counties where the death penalty was, um, you know, more prevalent. And then they looked at, you know, sort of the, the history on race in these counties. And a lot of them, you know, are southern counties. Um, you know, so they are wrapped up in a lot of sort of the other issues that we've talked about in criminal justice policy in the past where, you know, the criminal justice system isn't always, you know, race blind. It, it has definitely treated African Americans and Hispanics much worse than it has uh, white Americans. And so this, you know, this status of the death penalty is no different than a lot of other facets of the criminal justice system in that it has, um, you know, been more judiciously used with African Americans than with others. Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's pretty troubling in that report that the majority of these counties where the death penalty 
senses are so much higher seem to be for, you know, political reasons. It seems to be that was a campaign promise of the people who got elected to be district attorney in, in those areas. So, I mean, I think, I think that's a real troubling takeaway that people's lives are being, you know, lost, obviously because of the horrible things they did, but also because of political reasoning. And so instead of finding other alternatives that might be more productive for society, we're, you know, using the death penalty as a political campaign tool. Yeah, one of the things to note about the politics is that uh, Nebraska recently abolished the death penalty, and they, um, you know, it, the legislature voted to abolish the death penalty, but it has to be ratified by voters in the state in a referendum this November. But Nebraska is the first state that leans conservative um, that has abolished the death penalty in the last 40 years. So one of the ways in which the Supreme Court might consider whether or not um, the death penalty is constitutional or not is depends on how often it is used. And so if it, if it turns out that a lot of other states either ban the death penalty or put a moratorium on the death penalty, um, and then it's really only rarely used in states that have decided not to. That, so, so that is one point in favor of meeting the unusual standard from um, the you know, cruel and unusual language in the, the Eighth Amendment. So I think just to, to wrap this topic, um, in Nebraska, when they, uh, when they abolished the death penalty, they, this push was led by a pretty eccentric lawmaker um, in their state Senate named Ernie Chambers. Um, and so I want to close just with a recommendation to read a profile of Ernie Chambers. Um, he is, uh, I believe, the only African-American person serving in the Nebraska's unicameral legislature. Um, and he has brought up a bill to abolish the death penalty each of the 37 years in which he has been representing Omaha in the state legislature. Um, there's also another, there's also a bunch of other kind of crazy things about this guy. Um, he once sued God in 2007 to make a point about frivolous lawsuits. Um, and he was written up, you know, earlier in his career. So in 2005, um, he was written up a profile um, where they talked about his push to end the death penalty throughout his entire career. At that point, he had gotten a vote in the legislature to abolish the death penalty, but it was vetoed by the governor at the time. Um, so he recently accomplished this goal in Nebraska, supposing it is upheld by voters in the state. Um, but he is a really interesting guy and a testament to um, his efforts to abolish the death penalty in that state. Um, that's something that really just came to fruition for him and is a really interesting story worth checking out. Um, with that? Well, one quick question on Ernie Chambers. Uh, did he win that lawsuit with God or did he, uh, God settle? They, I don't think a judge took the case. Uh, that's, that's unfortunate. <laughs> I, think they, I think they realized his point that he was making on frivolous lawsuits and decided this one was relatively frivolous. Shame. Um, and with that, I think we'll go to our endnotes for the week. Um, so, Luke, what are, what are your endnotes for this week? Well, I have two, and they're both campaign-related. So I've been really excited to get my hands on the documentary Winger, which is about uh, Anthony Winger, who is a New York congressman who very famously accidentally 
uh, tweeted something that was intended for a direct message and showed us a bit more of Winger than we want to see. And they have made a documentary on his 2013 comeback bid as when he ran for mayor of New York. And it's a really fascinating campaign. Not, oh, well, yeah, it's a fascinating campaign. But it's also a fascinating documentary on an individual um, for many, many reasons. Because one, Anthony Winger is, like, very interesting to watch, and he's very bombastic, and he gets in people's faces. I mean, he's a typical, you know, New York politician. And what else is interesting about this documentary is that, like, it lets us into almost all of the, like, important conversations that happened in the entire documentary, I can only think of one time where Anthony Winger tells them to, you know, there's two times I can think of where he tells them to either not follow him to something he is doing or to turn it off. And that is pretty rare in these documentaries. I know a lot of people out there that are listening to this have probably seen the great Netflix documentary Met on Romney's uh, 2012 campaign. And, you know, you definitely got to see a lot, but you you don't feel like you're in the inner conversations of that campaign, especially near the last days where they might have known that uh, things were not going their way. Not true in this documentary. In this documentary, you watch them as they get really excited that he's leading in the polls and it looks like he's going to win, and it very much so looked like that. And then you see them just completely fall apart as another scandal breaks out and they try to handle it, and just a lot of the chaos of this campaign, you get to see it as if you were working on this campaign. And so I think that is just a really, really interesting documentary that um, has not been overhyped at all. And so for my second uh, end note, I am reading a book about uh, Bobby Kennedy's last campaign, uh, which is uh, very aptly named The Last Campaign which is um, on his 1968 campaign for the presidency um, when he uh, unfortunately was assassinated. And this book is just really, really good. It is extremely well-researched and is a day-by-day account of what he was doing and just some of the interesting things that popped up throughout the campaign. I think what makes the book really notable is the fact that it has had so much time to uh, dwell on what what America lost with Bobby Kennedy, and I think the book does an excellent job of showing the real message that was behind his campaign in a historical context, and how just really different that is from all the politics that followed, and due to his position in the polls and how he was uh, being extremely successful during the primary season, which was you know, very different than our system now, it very well looked like that Bobby Kennedy would have been the Democratic nominee had he not been assassinated. And then it's harder to tell if he would have beat Nixon, but it is very, very much so assured that the country would have been on a completely different trajectory had he won. And so those are themes and... Um, you know, ideas that the book readily explores. And I think that is a very interesting front. And then the other thing is, is just, it explains how even with the hope of that campaign and uh, how much they wanted to accomplish, there was also this overarching sense of doom during it. And that there's a sense of turmoil that a lot of people were, you know, very often referring to the, the fact that 
Robert Kennedy might be assassinated, and that that was almost an expectation by some people that he would be assassinated, and he ultimately was. And so I think that is a really interesting book, especially for this campaign season, because it shows how our political rhetoric has just really become prepackaged and um, not you know, not as sincere as I feel like that campaign was. And so I, I just found it a very interesting book and I would, could not highly recommend it more. Um, so for my end note this week, it is a little bit dated given that most of this information happened um, in the week before we did this, or the two weeks ago. Um, but, you know, after the big historic flooding in Louisiana, there was a big kerfuffle over um, whether or not President Obama should have left his vacation that he was on in Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts and gone down to New Orleans to tour um, the flooding and to tour the damage from the flooding and sort of assert his presence as president and um, you know be there as sort of an inspiration for the people who um, you know had basically had their lives and their homes destroyed by this historic flooding. Um, and then, you know, during the debate over that, Donald Trump did go to Louisiana and um, had what was a pretty low-key appearance for him, um, where he, you know, handed out water, um, you know, helped them unload a truck, and, like, that was caught on film. But, it, you know, by all accounts from you know, local news reporting, it was a pretty low-profile event, and then that gave him the um, the avenue to by which he could criticize both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama for not having gone to New Orleans yet or gone to Baton Rouge yet um, to view the flooding. Um, you know, since since this has happened, President Obama has visited. But the thing I wanted to point out that was interesting about this is that this was like a really classic example of um, what's become well-known in political science as the Green Lantern Theory of the presidency, that the president can achieve, that, you know, there's this belief that the president can achieve any political or policy objective that he wants if he tries and uses the right tactics. Um, and one of the other aspects of that is that one of the tactics that can be used is um, your appearance in front of the media and your appearance um, in the event of a disaster. Um, you know, it, you know, it's very often is sort of this idea of being visual during some kind of a disaster is um, you know, known as leading, um, and it it brought up one of the one of my favorite moments from The West Wing. Um, you know, the the pretty seminal show on the presidency from Aaron Sorkin, where um, during a period in um, Jed Bartlett's presidency, where he is sort of struggling to find himself and find what he wants to achieve as president, he goes to Oklahoma and tours um, some pretty horrific tornado damage. And, you know, he's only supposed to go for a few hours and then he's supposed to get back to Washington for some really important meetings. But throughout, you know, needing to sort of find himself and sort of finding himself within the stories of the people that he was talking to, he's, he extends his trip well beyond um, when he was supposed to be there. But, it, you know, the trip ends in this sort of seminal moment where his press secretary, C.J. Craig, sits down with him in Air Force One on the way back to Washington and um you know, the president asks if this, if CJ thought that this whole um, experience in Oklahoma was some sort of vanity exercise or something like that. And she got really upset with him and she it uttered the line that has since been uttered by every person who wants to critique Obama on um, 
on his inadequacies and crisis. Um, you know, she she demands of her president that he go back to Washington and lead, which is this sort of vague term. But you know, the 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 idea of leading. Um, is the same idea that was put on Obama for why he should go to Baton Rouge and tour this flood damage and why he should do a lot of other things. Um, and so it was this really interesting moment in which um, this theory of how people perceive presidents was at play in the wake of a natural disaster. Yeah, I think that's a pretty interesting theory and a good uh, good West Wing reference. I think that might be one of our first ones on the show. And I, I, I found it pretty interesting, too, that Obama waited so long to go and you know for a while was trying to not end his vacation before um you know to be a little bit more hands-on and so i think i think it's a a constant struggle for presidents to do the right thing optically in situations like this but with that i think uh we can uh, end our show for this week and i just wanted to thank everybody for uh, listening and you know again please like and subscribe us and comment and share us to all of your friends neighbors and pets um you know we're really enjoying doing the show and hope you like it too so with that thanks everybody and we'll see you next week and that's our show for the week we thank you for joining us if you have any feedback for the show you can reach us at peachpod.podcast at gmail.com if you found us on itunes please leave us a comment and a rating all those other podcasts say it helps you find their shows, and we would definitely love to be found. We'll be back next week with more pickings from the Peach State. Until then, take care, y'all.